Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Annie Hodson. Welcome to Our Shelves, Annie. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. Annie is a queer writer and playwright from York, who's now based in London, with work shortlisted for Channel 4 Screenwriting, BBC Writers Room, the Papatango Prize and the Funny Women Writing Award. She is currently writing a bilingual English-Irish fantasy script set in Donegal. She was previously selected for the Penguin Right Now event, and she was selected as one of the 40-strong cohort of the London Library's 2022-23 Emerging Writers Programme, and has just won the Virago Fury short story competition. Her winning entry, Banshee, will be included in the paperback edition of the collection when it's published in the spring. Uh, Congratulations, Annie. I assume it's quite a thrill to have your story alongside the other Virago contributors. Um, Yeah, I'm absolutely amazed. I mean, when I I first heard of the competition, I... um... Uh, I read the book, of course, and uh, there were so many fantastic stories and really right up my street in terms of sort of feminism and also kind of uh, historical women and uh, some ghouls and goblins and kind of fancy elements um, and really beautiful stories. So, yeah, I I couldn't be more thrilled and surprised uh, to to be chosen. Um, And, yeah, it's really, really exciting. Um, and can you give our listeners a sort of a little hint about your story without giving too much away just to whet their appetites <laughs> uh, yeah sure so um yeah it's set in set in Ireland so it's, it's a banshee story which was the uh the word I immediately thought of when I saw the kind of competition parameters um and yeah it focuses on a little girl um Ashing uh, and her relationship with her parents and of course a banshee that uh the uh may be stalking someone for death in their small town very creepy. I I loved it. Um, I read it over the weekend. I thought it was wonderful. Got a sneak peek. So uh, I in, make sure that all the listeners run out and buy the paperback copy when it's available of the book. I'd love to know maybe a little bit more about your relationship with Virago as a reader. Have you always have you been a long term fan of the imprint? And what do you think of when you think of a Virago book? Oh, yeah. So definitely. I mean, I remember kind of my first sort of proper introduction. My mum definitely had a few of the books, but my auntie had this whole beautiful collection in her house. Um, She literally had a bookcase in her room, all the green spines. Um, So it's kind of very notable. So I sort of said I was probably, you know, 11, 12, something like, what are these? 
and then she explained, um, and that's my auntie Maggie, and she's a sort of lesbian feminist from back in the day, and kind of um, nice. all these sort of beautiful. Yeah, I, I think my kind of um, you know I'm, I'm lucky to sort of been raised in a, a family of feminists, really. Um, so these books are always available, but it was really exciting to see something that was so focused on women and also on kind of um yeah books from the past that I'd never heard of really um I remember kind of looking through the collections and sort of piecing together and yeah like I said my mum my had some at home as well um and I, I very recently read um the uh the bite of the apple the many gooding book um and it's just so I mean it, it makes me a bit jealous to, I want to go back to that time and kind of be part <laughs> of it even though I know there were very you know fraught things along the way publishing is not an easy business um but yeah. what an exciting thing to to kind of be setting up this imprint and to be boldly saying, you know, um, this is, women is what we want to focus on and rediscovering the gems of the past. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's a big deal. It still is. It is, isn't it? I love the fact you brought up Lenny's book. I think she was the first guest on our very first episode of Our Shelves came on to talk about um, her long uh, association with Virago. And like you, I think when I read that um, that memoir, yes, fraught times, lots of stress, but also like what a wonderful thing to be a part of and to see it kind of go through so many iterations and still be around today, I think is is really important. And of course, those the famous green spines on everyone's shelves. Every, I, the minute I go into anyone's house, if I see the green spines, you've got to go and see which ones they've got. <laughs> I think even now it's it's still that. Um, and tell me a little bit more about your writing. So you write scripts, you write short stories, you... Yeah, I never, I sort of was knocking on any door that would um, have me really. Yeah, I definitely when I was younger, it was more stories. And I've, I've still, stories and prose, I've still kept that up. And um, uh, definitely um, I'm interested in, in sort of working on, on a novel now. Um, but yeah, plays, um, I, I loved it. I did a master's in playwriting um, and... I, I, I find plays very difficult to write, but I enjoy them. I think that's something about them, the puzzle to be unlocked. Um, so I'm not a very prolific playwriter, but um, uh, I've, I'm working with a production company now on a play I've just written. So hopefully something may come of that. Because, yeah, that's the difference, I suppose, between plays and stories and novels. A play or a script mm. is incomplete until it's filmed or it's staged. You know, there's always something missing. Right. Whereas I do kind of love the completeness of a story or a novel. You know, it's just there and anyone can kind of interact with it. Um, but yeah, the liveness of theatre is really exciting as well. So yeah, I've, I've sort of written about um, quite a lot about violence against women. Um, mm. Usually, hopefully, in kind of um, I'm trying to take a different crack at the angle to sort of um, like I, I guess I guess what I'd say is what I'm trying to do is not write work that has too many easy answers, especially because for things like that there aren't any easy answers. So um, definitely, the play that I was most recently working on that's kind of consumed a lot of my time was definitely a response to sort of the um, the high profile a lot of high profile murders in London of women um, of, of women everywhere you know it's it's all the time it's constant and um, so it was it was kind of a, a sort of quite a um an angry piece in some ways um but yeah I've also written some comedy scripts um I have a comedy film script that I wrote in the pandemic which like everything that happened in the pandemic <laughs> I know like everything that happened in the pandemic I don't remember writing it because the pandemic is just a strange blur now um, how weird I know everyone looks back on it in different ways but it does I love the idea of these sort of bits of art that were that are sort of sitting around that were worked on during that time and are slightly weird and maybe unplaceable because of the weirdness exactly, of the time exactly yeah I don't remember and everyone there was a lot of pressure everyone was saying oh well Shakespeare wrote King Lear well in the play yeah. I was I'll do okay <laughs> standards are high um uh but yeah so I really I, I'm kind of interested in in everything um like I said in the stories um I took some creative writing classes uh, back in uni and um, really loved writing the short stories but always as well 
uh, felt kind of, I suppose, like a lot of people, you know, it's a common thing. Like, I really want to write that novel um, one day yeah. and kind of see so, how yeah, that's sort of my, my project now um, that I finished it. Well, I hope you'll be back in the future when you have written that novel and we can talk about that then. Um, we're, I think we're going to touch on playwriting a bit more later in the later in the episode when we get to one of the questions. But let's dive straight in and, and talk a little bit about your reading at the moment. So first up, I've asked you to pick a couple of books that are currently on your bedside table. What have you chosen? I've chosen Maru by Bessie Head and uh, Greek Lessons by Han Kang. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so both both incredibly different books. Um, yeah, yeah, there's kind of not much. So, um, um, kind of Maru sort of came about. Um, I was looking this year to read more African writers, and especially African women's writers. Um, and I just came across the description, which is kind of funny actually. The description of of Maru is incredibly simple. It just says it's a young woman from um, a kind of oppressed minority uh, in in South Africa, Botswana, going to teach in a school. So it sounds very mm. simple, um, and it, it's a short book. It's only 90 pages or something. It's a novella, but um, it's incredibly complex and uh, intriguing. I haven't got the measure of it at all. The sort of um, there's the main plot, which is sort of about this this racism which this young woman Margaret experiences, um, being from a kind of um, indigenous hunter gatherer tribe, um, and a mm. lot of, a lot of prejudice um, against them. But also this sort of mad power struggle between these two men who live in the village that she goes to teach. They say village, and at one point she says a village of 50,000. So I realised that my wow. my British village expectations were uh, had to be readjusted, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting book because it kind of, um, almost when you think it's getting started, it finishes, uh, and it really mm. leaves you with a sort of, because some of the, ro- sometimes the romance, some of the romance is, is of interest, and some, and some of it is kind of like, horrible and and sort of bordering on abuse and uh these kind of fascinating characters coming in and out some for very short periods of time so yeah it was like a very rich meal in a very um sort of short space of time so I really enjoyed that so I I definitely would look to read more of her I was reading a little bit about her I don't know I've never read any of her work myself to my to my shame but I I think she was a name I had recognized and then I was doing a bit more reading her life sounds very very interesting, very fraught and very kind of, you know, quite hard work in many ways. I don't know if you know much about yeah, her. Yeah, so I mean, just sort of what I've looked up, but yeah, being born in South Africa um, to a white mother and a, and a black father, and I think the mother was in an asylum when she gave birth to her. Mm-hmm. So she was immediately fostered out. The first couple returned her because she didn't look white enough. She went to another family, stayed there she was 12, went off to school, and then they told her that they weren't her family and she never went back to them. So very kind of uh, traumatic and then yeah she was in South Africa and involved in sort of the um, racial equality movement and then ended up in Botswana where she lived the rest of her life um, and yeah and died before she died really young before kind of she was getting sort of recognition there definitely been some and her books have been published mm-hmm. but never really sort of um, made a full yeah, she died in her late 40s didn't yeah she? It was oh my gosh very it's very sad so yeah so I kind of I, I, I was fascinated and yeah this this book is is truly fascinating and so you can definitely see um maybe things from her own life that, that she's sort of working through. The main character is adopted. Yes, I was wondering whether there were any autobiographical element, elements in yeah, there. Because so she was a teacher She was a teacher, herself, she was a teacher she? yeah, but, before yeah. she went to become a journalist. And, um, yeah, the, the main character, Margaret, is adopted by a white missionary when her mother dies in childbirth. Um, okay. And the mother, it's, it's kind of very strange. The, the mother, um, the adoptive mother, just basically leaves when she becomes an adult and never comes back. She goes back to England and essentially she'll never wow. see her again um so I wonder if that was sort of the horrible rupture of 
being sent away to school and then told they weren't your parents and you're not going back. Um, so, yeah, so it's really, um, yeah, really, really kind of sort of fascinating um, kind of richly layered writing. Um, so, yeah, I'll read. I think her next one's more kind of famous. In fact, actually, I think there's a Virago edition of these two books. I didn't know at the time. I think Maru and another book is together. Virago's done everything, you see. <laughs> This is the thing. You start delving deep into the archive and like it's bound to be a Virago modern classic at some point. Or... <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and what about Greek lessons? I, again, this is rather embarrassing, but this is a this is a recent um, publication. But I've read um, a lot of Han Kang's other work, but I haven't read Greek lessons yet. So tell me about it. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I may, again, very, very different. Incredibly sort of just focused on language. In fact, I think I read a review that said language is the third character in this book mm. so it's basically about a um a setting career and it's a woman who is can't is not speaking at the moment has lost the ability to speak um and uh taking ancient greek lessons from a man who is slowly losing his sight um and this kind of um well not exactly relationship between them all their relation to the world around them so you get both of their perspectives and you get this beautiful poetry as well um but yeah the translation because obviously there's different like we've got the ancient greek that um they're constantly talking mm-hmm. about uh, she kind of the female protagonist muses on Korean a lot and the different kind of characters that she's uh, are important to her. He's lived in Germany, so he talks about German. There's also he learned German sign wow. language, um, so it is it is very it draw and it, I suppose reading it in translation that is kind of doubly interesting because there's this third layer of I'm yeah. not getting you know what she what she kind of um, originally put, but I'm getting uh, a brilliant interpretation of it. I mean, it's obviously like well, it reads like a beautiful translation to me, but yeah, the um, it's a book of language languages which is really fascinating um i don't know any asian greek um but i I was intrigued by the kind of um uh the ways that uh she bends it towards poetry i believe she is a poet i think hang kang herself or she's oh maybe not actually i can't remember i don't actually i really don't know no neither do i but i i wouldn't be surprised (laughs) to learn it after i've read this yeah yeah yeah. exactly because um yeah yeah and very different yeah the vegetarian was the last one i read which i loved but uh, quite different from that like um kind of much uh yeah very quiet novel but bursting with kind of uh potent themes um yeah so it's really interesting another short one as well so we all love a short <laughs> book it's uh, especially for a bedside yeah, exactly. table book I think that's very important are these quite sort of typical of your reading do you like to do you like to read things that are quite different to sort of juxtapose them against each other are you fascinated by language particularly what do you look for when you're kind of trying to think what to well, read next? often I, I end up with juxtaposition just because um, I'm in a book group uh, which is great we mm. actually do I really love this it's very cheesy but we do an activity with each book oh what a kind of themed activity or just a oh yeah so sometimes it's very simple so in the book group um, we went to the uh, lovely LGBT museum in King's Cross which I really recommend to anyone it's free and it's just a couple of rooms you can just wander in um, and look around and we pair that with the new life um, by Tom Cruise I think it is uh, which is about the kind of early sexuality yes. yeah, and gender uh, things so yeah it's great so often I end up reading a book that A I wouldn't necessarily have picked up but that we always agree so we've got mm. um, actually we all agree sometimes we do classes we did Middle March at the start of the year because um, none of us had read it and we're about to do um, The Golden Notebook should be good um so it's, nice. it's a real mix yeah um and a real exciting mix and then the books I choose myself tend to be more um often on recommendation uh my mum's mm. a big reader uh, I've got a lot of friends who are big readers um and so I find myself very often not even being in the position to pick because someone's already said something that I think oh yeah that's going on my list um but very occasionally I'm, I'm a member of Barbican Library I just wander around and 
if something strikes me, um, you know, on the shelves or the stacks, the cover, then um, I'll pick it up. But yeah, I'd say other than maybe, well, no, yeah, I'd say I'm interested in almost any genre, Um, perhaps less sci-fi, but uh, even uh, we did one in the book group and I enjoyed it. So never say never. This book group sounds amazing. I love the idea of um, actually doing it with events. There's a there's a wonderful walking book group um, uh, run by Emily Rhodes on Hampstead Heath, where they discuss the book, where they walk around, which I, I've been to a few sessions of that. But like, the idea of having something else to kind of complement the book and to kind of bring it together and make it more of an activity is a really nice idea. Yeah, it's lovely. And if everyone hates the book, which very occasionally happens, then at least you're doing something else enjoyable while you discuss it. <laughs> That's so true. You're not just sat there in a bookshop or kind of just chatting around. You've got something else to take your mind off it. Perfect. I think that's a, yeah, I hope many people are going to set up their own kind of specialist book groups based on this uh, recommendation. Um, and next up, I think you're going to tell me about a recent film that you've been watching. Uh, what That sounds sort of weird, put it that way. A film you have watched recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it, it's not a new film. So um, I've, I've been going to the BFI quite a lot this year. I don't know why. Winter was very dark and I felt like I just need something to do with my evenings. Um, and uh, they were doing a lot of the sort of um, the critics poll sight and sound you know the top 250 films of all time or something um and they were showing wonder which i'd never heard of by barbara loden um which is from 1970 uh, it didn't get make much of a stir here um i don't even know when it was released here and in america it kind of got very middling reviews it did well in europe it won a prize um in venice um but yeah barbara loden was uh, an actress she was the second wife of um <coughs> of the film director Aliyah kazan um, and she uh, she only made one film. She unfortunately died of breast cancer about 10 years later, I think, after she made this. Um, and it's the most kind of, uh, I don't even know what the word is, kind of confronting, brilliant um, piece of cinema. It just follows a woman, Wanda, who's incredibly down on her look. She's living in sort of the coal mining region of Pennsylvania. And it, the film essentially starts with her leaving her kids to her husband and his new partner, the court case, she just says he's better off, they're better off with him. And off she goes on these kind of um, falling in with the wrong man and then a very wrong man uh, later on. Um, and her performance is, is, is beautiful. And the film, I mean, it's a real definition of an indie film. It was shot on a kind of shoestring budget. Um, and I think there was only two professional actors in it, her and one of the other guys. So there's lots of just kind of extras um, that were just people from the region. Um, and, I guess what I really loved about it is I suppose it's the life of a, a woman who isn't isn't special, uh, isn't really intelligent, you know, isn't kind of like going places in life, isn't a girl boss, isn't doing great things. Like, you know, she is she's oppressed and she doesn't really have anything going for her and she's kind of drifting through life. And it was just this sort of really beautiful portrait of of how these things can kind of um, slip away. I think she says at one point something like, uh, never had anything, never will have anything um, sort of thing. And she's very practical about it all. You know, she's just, she's kind of moving on. And then apparently a lot of the critics at the time, I think basically objected almost on feminist grounds. They were like, well, this woman is stupid and she's passive. You know, she doesn't kind of save herself uh, from what's happening. But I just think it, it, it's amazing. It's, it's kind of like I've always sort of... Um, loved you know films and books and things that cast a light on uh people who are trying their best and and maybe it's not good enough I think we need to see those Mm -hmm. kind of women uh as well and it's just a kind of magnetic uh performance and and uh yeah really beautiful film that just sort of um 
is kind of yeah, I guess an anathema to sort of the easy narratives of um yeah. of women on film or or even yeah, kind of um it's always interesting to look back and read feminist reviews of time because our concerns have kind of changed so much. And I saw as well, in fact, I saw a great um, fun lesbian heist movie from Australia called On Guard uh, not long ago at the uh, thing. And there's a very sweet scene of just two of the women in bed together, not at all sexualized. And there was a big debate at the time kind of saying, is this the male gaze and stuff? Um, and it's mm-hmm. very interesting how things that maybe in a more sexualized moment that we're in now seem very innocent and lovely, but at the time aroused sort of more uh more more controversy um but yeah i i really i would recommend wonder to anyone i think it's kind of a a, a perfect slice of life of, of this woman and her identity and yeah it's so sad that she didn't make another film um, apparently she was working on a adaptation of um the awakening by kate chopin which mm. would have been interesting and she had some other projects going um but uh, i think she would have yeah would have made more beautiful films if she'd had the chance yeah i feel like that it sort of it's definitely not the reason, but it, it adds another layer of sort of melancholy and meaning, I think, to the film to know that it was the only thing that she, you know, was able to work on. Um, and I feel like watching Wanda is one of those strange, almost feels like a sort of rite of passage that once you've watched it, you're sort of, you're then, you're in the club and, you know, I, I defy anyone to watch this film and not be completely kind of moved and stunned and sort of become slightly obsessed with it in a weird way for a while afterwards. Um, but if you haven't seen it, I was interested to know whether, have you ever read um, the book uh, Sweet for Barbara Loden? No, by... I would love to. Have you read it? Is it good? Yeah, I have. Yes, I was going to say, I, I think it, the same thing that sort of happened to you once I I came across a mention of Wanda somewhere a few years ago, someone was recommending it and obviously I got a copy and I watched it and I sort of fell for it, you know, completely and wanted to learn more about her and wanted to learn more about the movie. And then I found the book, which is published by, I think, Dorothy Project in um America, which is a lovely publishing um, house anyway. But I very much recommend it because it's a sort of strange book in the way that the film is this kind of strange, almost sort of documentary style, but obviously not. It's a kind of fictionalized thing. The book itself is um, about the author's obsession with the film and the sort of cult that's arisen around it. But it moves between sort of biography, autofiction, film criticism, like fact, speculation. So it's a quite a destabilizing kind of read, but a really um, sort of, you know, it broadens out your idea of what this film means. And I think it's the kind of perfect companion piece for it, for such a strange and evocative oh, film. That sounds amazing. No, I'll definitely have to get that, yeah. Yeah. There we are then, the recommendations back and forth. (laughs) (laughs) Our shelves will be back in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Annie Hodson about the weird and wonderful power of Barbara Loden's film Wanda. Um, next up then, Annie, could you tell me about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way? Yeah, so Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde is kind of... Um... Well, yeah, I mean, I remember, in fact, I don't know if we had that. We we had another couple of her books. Um, I think they were even stored in my room as a kid. But I think it was later in my early 20s when I actually started to read it. I'd probably read independently, just on its own, the famous essay, The Master's Tools, Whenever Dismantle the Master's House. Mm-hmm. And so I picked up the kind of the book with her, some of her other essays in. I consider myself an insectional feminist and... I think that was sort of my first understanding of how that term kind of operates. And this was before I was considering myself that because maybe I didn't know what the term meant. There's so many things you could say, but she's just a a brilliant writer, a brilliant poet and clear and direct and wonderful sense of humour and everything. Um, And some of the essays book just crystallised for me a lot of the thoughts I was having and also were definitely an invitation to to scrutinise myself and my practices, you know, as a a white woman, um, a lot of the conversation in the book is about like how how is the mainstream feminist movement you know I mean it's written you know in in the 70s 80s but these these concerns still need to be addressed about how much we're building a movement you know of white middle class women and excluding anyone who's perceived to be other I think it's like a call to action some of the essays again just like beautiful writing there's that great conversation with Adrian Rich in there which is uh, just lovely to read two friends really digging into kind of um, mm. the issues that they sort of mutually care about. And then, of course, yeah, I think an essay like The Master's Tools does sort of have such a long life and is such a seminal text because it's still so potent and powerful in terms of reminding us of uh, kind of our, our responsibility, I guess, as feminists. And yeah, how how we'll never win that way. <laughs> yeah. And I love the way she writes about anger as well. And like I said, anger sort of does come up in my work quite a lot, women's anger. Mm. Yeah, before I'd learned maybe the official term intersectionality, I, I was introduced to it by her and her kind of practice. Yeah, I still kind of I turn to her poems very often. And uh, yeah, I think she's she's just an inspiration. So that book was just sort of a widening open or a widening of my feminist practice. Mm. It's so interesting that you mentioned anger as well, because I feel like this has become in, in the last sort of few years, I think that sort of feminist writing, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, has started to kind of think about what it means to be angry like what you know what's going on behind the scenes and we're getting to see stories about angry women in a different light and yet obviously this kind of anger has been around for a very long time and people have been kind of writing about it and have been thinking about it before but it's sort of only coming into focus now and in the sort of broader bigger picture perhaps yeah absolutely and I think like I think sometimes I think to be a woman is in the society is to be angry because um we're so bombarded with misogyny and uh mm. Uh, news of our sisters being killed and uh and and hurt and kind of um uh, i think uh it's it's very difficult to um yeah to kind of almost plan i think sometimes the part of the anger is useful because it spurs you on and then part of the anger is paralyzing i sometimes do feel paralyzed by um yeah by kind of considering so i think yeah to to, to have writings like audrey lords and others which are sort of clarifying, I guess, the call to action um, oh. rather than just uh, making sure that that we're we're understanding each other, um, kind of you know, kind of as women um, uh, with our differences. Because we had, you know, we had the Me Too movement and, and and similar movements across the thing, and and some things changed, but some things didn't, obviously, and we're we're still very much in the thick of the fight. Um, and it's both, it, it's disheartening to look back and see all the fights that 
kind of almost repeating that, that we've had before kind of as feminists that come back around. But then I suppose a part of it is also kind of encouraging that you look back and see a long line of women who who have been who've been in this fight and it's kind of it's this legacy. Yeah. You're not the only one, right? You're kind of you you've got there are people there beside you, behind you, in front exactly. of you. Exactly. All all pushing in the same direction, hopefully one one would So yeah, I definitely feel I, I feel um inspired when I read her words and also I feel kind of reminded of of um of the work we, we should do in ourselves to make sure that we're um having an inclusive feminist practice um and yeah and also just great poetry as well <laughs> separately issue like I do I do think she's a genius yeah so yeah so you return to her work again and again and, and there's always something new there for you yeah yeah I think so and also I think just in terms of um yeah I guess there's just something very appealing in the kind of directness of her and like I said I, I love the interview her and, and Adrian Rich interviewing each other and obviously they were lifelong friends um I would love to read you know there is plenty of that out there and I always love to read it like there's, there's obviously such a tradition in literary society anyway of kind of men of letters in the past exchanging mm. their great views on things um, and I always love to hear uh, about women you know uh, talking to each other talking across the divide talking about um issues they both face and this kind of very potent sense of um uh I guess a kind of um a really well thought out sort of uh philosophy but also a capacity for change I think that's um yeah that's one of the most important things I get from it that we if we're open to each other then we can change brilliant and next up I think we're going to be able to talk about uh playwriting your own work and that of uh other people here because you're going to tell me you picked a uh, a woman for your pedestal answer the, the woman or a person of unrepresented gender whom you particularly admire uh, this is Naomi Wallace, um, the playwright. I know very little about her work, so I would love you to sort of give me a crash course in, in <laughs> who she is, what she's written and why she's important. Yeah, so she she is definitely not like a household name, even though she does um, get produced quite often. But yeah, basically, I came across her. Um, I, I did American, American and Canadian studies at university and it had a year in America. Um, and while I was in the American university, um, I took uh, some theatre classes and the description of the classes was basically a review of Arthur Miller, Edward Albee, and um, Tennessee Williams. And then we got there on the first day, and the teacher, uh, Josh Chambers Letson, he was called, said, I'm not doing any of that. I'm going to do culture wars, and we're going to talk about um, all these kind of different uh, political theatre makers. Um, and every class that I took with him was like that. And without kind of making a big deal out of it, almost all of the people we studied were women or people of colour. And um, kind of he just... Uh, he really cemented in my mind this idea of theatre as a force for political change and Naomi Wallace was one of the people we covered. Um, so she she's from Kentucky. I think she spends half her time in the UK uh, now and she, she's quite often produced here. So the Fimbra Theatre, she has a long-standing relationship with. She just had a play there a couple of months ago. Um, and she writes these beautiful... She's also a poet and you can see it. She writes these beautiful political pieces that are also very lyrical and gorgeous and tackles really mm. big themes. So... Um, kind of a lot of her stuff really plays with gender, especially gender presentation on stage, which can be really exciting because you, you know, again, that's the liveness of theatre. You've got the body there on the stage um, and you've got the fluidity of what to do with it. Um, yeah, she's very political. So In the Heart of America, which is one of my favourites, that's the first one I studied, that's about the first Gulf War um, and a queer romance between uh, a Palestinian-American soldier and a white American soldier, Um including a ghost from the Vietnam War on stage. and uh, uh, Yeah, exactly. Like, this is the kind of thing, these beautiful <laughs> things can all merge together. And it's very powerful. There's a love scene in that, a sex scene 
where they kind of make love by talking about um, weapons. Uh, so yeah, she's yeah wow. she's very kind of tuned into this sort of rugged militarism of kind of um, the American way. And the War Boys is another great one. Um, it's three American men, one of whom is Mexican American, patrolling the border um, in Texas to stop mm. Mexicans getting in over the border. And it's a very kind of um, I think it's from the '90s, but it's again it's it's kind of this really fascinating critique of this sort of um, American exceptionalism. Um, and especially the way young men sort of funnel it through. Um, and yeah, she's she's written she wrote one for the RSC Slaughter City, which was about um, uh, workers' rights, labour rights through the centuries. And again, another ghost in that. Um, so she's incredibly inventive, um, kind of formally playful. Like it's I, I haven't you know half is it's sad in a way because half of the plays I love so much I haven't seen because. Um, yeah, I was going to ask how many of you, how many have you actually well, seen I saw on the stage? last one, um, the Fimber, the Return of Benjamin Lay, which is brilliant. It's about a radical Quaker preacher who was a real person who actually got chucked out of the Quakers for being too radical. He was an abolitionist. <laughs> I know he's he's so cool. He do things like stab a Bible and have blood come out and stuff. He was very dramatic. Wow. Kidnap people's kids so they could see what it was like to be a slave. Like, uh, yeah, he he's a very interesting figure and. Um, yeah, before that, I saw a play of hers, The Breach at the Hampstead, and then the Young Vic did for only four days, I think, four performances, and um, Things of Dry Hours, which is a play about early black communists in in America in the thirties, uh, which is a brilliant play. But yeah, I've not I've not seen, and um, I think before before I lived in London, the Donmar did One Fleece Fair, which is about um, mm. plague victims locked in a house together. Um, or maybe they were oh, wow. maybe they're not plague victims, but you know it's one of those things where they all get locked in. Yeah, and that's again another beautiful play and another kind of interesting use of the erotic on stage as well. And so yeah, so it's it's a sadness to me definitely. I I would love for a theatre in Britain to just do a Naomi Wallace season and just put all her plays on because I think they're so brilliantly relevant. Like yeah, I mean in the heart of America, like I said, it's set in the first Gulf War. It could easily have been set during the Iraq War, and like as we know, sadly these things. I think that's even a quote. In the play, the ghost says, you know, what's done is done and done again. So this, this endless mm. kind of these cycles of war. And um, so, yeah, she's just she's really cool. I'm like a super fan. <laughs> From what you're saying, it sounds like and maybe there are others, but it sounds like she's also particularly clued into sort of ideas of masculinity and exploring that when you talk about gender. Like, does that... Is, am I right in saying yeah, that? Yeah, definitely. Or? Like, I kind of... I think the reviews at the time, because the War Boys was on at the Fimber, I think, in the 90s, um, and I think one of the reviews said something like storming the preserves of traditional masculinity. Um, so, right. yeah. And also, yeah, there's one that's, um, I think, produced quite uh, a lot uh, in America, or at least is kind of popular with younger people. It's called The Trestle at Pope Lick Creek, and it's this boy and this girl, and they exchange clothes at one point. There's this, like, there's a lot of stuff about men and women and kind of um, uh, a power exchange, perhaps in sexuality, but also in terms of really, like, lovely things about pushing gender binaries um, that happens in Slaughter City as well. Um, and yeah, and very kind of, um, yeah, sort of sort of beautifully alive um, to kind of all, all the possibilities. But yeah, masculinity, I think, um, definitely does pop up more um, in the early plays. That's interesting, I wonder what she'd say. And then Benjamin Lay, you know, the latest one is kind of just a fantastic figure like he's, he's he was such a fascinating person um and it's a great it's kind of a, a one-person show uh production mm -hmm. so yeah i just think she's kind of endlessly inventive i guess um, um and can i pick up on something you said towards the beginning of the episode we know we talked briefly about um you know being a playwright and until your mm -hmm. plays are kind of produced on stage like they sort of don't exist in the same way and so again i'm really interested to pick up on what you're saying here about 
not but having to read some of the work and maybe not seeing it performed as a playwright yourself I don't know what 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 do you feel about that because I I feel like I don't read enough I probably don't sit down and read enough plays to begin with but it is a very different experience isn't it the text is there and obviously it stands and it's important and you can get a lot out of it and it can still be incredibly sort of informative and and an interesting kind of artistic experience, but it is very different to then seeing people yeah. actually embodying this, right? This is the thing. I think it gives you a real, yeah. And so actually, yeah, someone like Naomi Wallace or say someone like Tony Kushner, you can sit and read their plays because they're very, um, I don't know, sort of uh, almost work as beautiful pieces of literature as well. But yeah, there is there is right. that gap um, between. And I have it's happened the other way. I've read plays that I was like, oh, I'm not really into that. And then I saw it and I was like, oh no, it's brilliant. Um, you know, because you, you sometimes really can't tell. But yeah, I think yeah. You know, it's very exciting. And maybe in the same way when people read, you know, scripts of films before they're made, the producers have been go, oh, yes, I can see this. Let's make it um, mm. to sort of imagine. And by the time the production comes along, they might do things in a very different way to how you imagined it um, or even yeah. how the playwright said it. And which I think is good. Samuel Beckett's estate famously doesn't let you change anything about his stage directions or all this and kind right. of thing. And I think they're totally missing a trick because the beauty of, of theatre is that it's got to exist in the day and for now and the liveness um, and it's got to adapt and change with the times. Um, so so once you've written a play, for example, then do you, are you sort of, are you feeling at home with the fact that someone else, the director, you know, the kind of the cast, everyone takes it on and they bring something very, not, not necessarily completely different, but they do bring a different take on it, right? And you're, and are you allowing for that sort of, that broadening out of your Yeah, vision? definitely. I think that's really exciting. Like it's, it's a collaboration. I think that's the best thing about it. Um, I kind of love that people can bring things that you didn't expect. It's kind of like when you see a really good Shakespeare production and a line you've never understood before is suddenly, oh, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Or, you know, you, you get a big right. laugh when you think, oh, I would never have thought that could be funny. Um, so yeah, I, I love the idea. Actually, I think that's that's one of my favourite things: the idea of collaborating and, and making something. In fact, the latest play uh, that I wrote that um, is sort of um, hoping to be produced next year, I did some edits on it, and then they kind of said, "Do you want to edit anymore?" And I said, "No, I want to get it in the room because then edits will come. Mm. People will have suggestions and ideas, and if it can get on his feet, then uh, hopefully, yeah, other people will have things to say that are kind of really um, exciting and, and enriching." Uh, of the sorts of products so no I, I never feel kind of I guess uh like I have to protect exactly yeah. yeah yeah I think if, if people were making really rogue decisions you might have to <laughs> say something <laughs> yeah, yeah but basically not fascinating stuff well finally today then Annie can you tell me about your golden apple this is the Virago book that you would regularly recommend to others yeah so um it's the group by Mary McCarthy um and I read this again, sort of in, in my mid twenties. Um, I think I was, uh, so a friend of my age had recommended it to me. Um, and then I saw mm. it at my auntie's house, who I mentioned earlier with all the Viragos. Your auntie has, yeah. I, I want to see your no, auntie's honestly, bookshelves. It's so amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then she said, of course, and I thought, okay, so this is kind of, um, two different generations, very wholeheartedly recommending this book, which looked interesting already. So I picked it up. Mm. Yeah. And I think I just read it cover to cover very quickly. Um, I was totally kind of entranced by by these women and um sort of the, the weave of the stories um and the kind of things I was very unfamiliar with like the whole pessary thing was very traumatic the whole her waiting you know the poor woman who gets stood up and waiting on a bench and all that kind of thing and I was amazed by some of the things that are still so relevant I was thinking very recently you know you have the character I think it's Pris who who gives birth and everyone's got very strong opinions that she shouldn't breastfeed or she should breastfeed and all this mm. and that and I was like well 
yeah, you know, my friends are having children at the moment and these pressures on mothers are not going away at all or people who breastfeed, like there's yeah. a constant kind of cacophony of you're doing it right, you're doing it wrong, like this is how you raise a perfect child, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so yeah, some things in the book are very much um, kind of brilliantly off their time and then some concerns sort of uh, persist. So yeah, I've just really enjoyed being in their world and I love the ending so much. I love Lakey coming back um, and this kind of beautiful sort of a, surprise as it were and her being kind of so cool and elegant it just felt like a a kind of perfect um I don't know summation of everything that gone before and I guess a little bit maybe a sort of um a hint of something else a different life that was possible that was out right. there that's what I felt for me anyway maybe because I am a queer woman but um uh because I mean they'd all suffered terribly at the hands of men in that book so <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe that was the option at the end you know you know you shouldn't go with men at all but um yeah, I, I loved it and I was very excited and it was just exciting then to talk about various people, uh, talk about it with various people in my life who also loved it. I really think it's a book that, you know, people people of any generation can read and it will persist into the future um, as being kind of a classic uh, because... It's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's, it's written, it was published in the 1960s, but it's set mm. earlier, isn't it? It's set in the 30s. Yeah, I think I, so. It's been a while since I read it. So, But I think the same, I did the same thing. It was one of the books that I sort of picked up in my 20s and was just sort of astounded by yes some of the sort of historical stuff that has changed but also so many things hasn't haven't changed about what it means to be a young woman sort of you know setting out in life and your ambitions and your goals and like you know how life gets in the way and these things that you think you want and you don't want and then what you're up against and yes I I feel like it's one of those books that I need to go back and reread every yeah. sort of 10 years just to <laughs> just to check in with again and, and you know recognize its relevance over over the years yeah exactly well it's funny because I, I also feel like I want to reread because when I kind of said I'd talk about it on this podcast I then looked up some sort of kind of reviews around it which I don't think it done at the time and people were really mean about it I, I don't think I knew that she was running in this sort of set who felt some of them felt offended like they've been satirized and some of them were just kind of oh it's not very good and stuff and um she she kind of felt quite yeah. sort of uh, wounded by the whole reception um it did surprise me yes there was definitely some kind of issues around it but it was a bestseller for like yeah. the first two years and I think. apparently it, it sold incredibly i love well. the fact that all these women were reading especially the sex chapter like, like everyone <laughs> knew that you could go go to the bit where they have sex and you could read this kind of lovely frank description of it yeah exactly well i think that should be a recommendation for any listener who hasn't read the group yet to go and pick it up uh relevant now as it ever was it's one of uh yeah i think it's probably one of the so hard to pick a favourite, obviously, amongst the sort of Virago modern classics, and one would never want to. But there are some. There, are, you know, it is one of a, it is one of the great books there. I think. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing your recommendations with us today, Annie. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, this was great. Well, thank you everyone else for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Annie Hodson, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism, and culture. Mm-hmm.